where does the inspiration to create music come from? Maybe you're one of those people who can find inspiration anywhere, from the powerful moments you've experienced in your life, or maybe you get deeply inspired by listening to music from current or great artists that came before you. But what happens when you've got a creative idea that you're excited about, and you've got something standing in your way? You can't figure out what to write, how to write, how to get your music out there, or most critically, how to monetize. And what do you do if you've got someone in your way? As musicians and lovers of music, we've experienced many of these gatekeepers, and we've also seen those same gatekeepers fall like dominoes over generations, until it feels like they've disappeared. Today we'll talk about how we got here, and as lovers or makers of music, how we can break through. Welcome to Let Creativity Flow, brought to you by Splice, a music creator marketplace for samples and software. Go to osirispod.com creativity to learn more and to see a special offer for listeners of this podcast. In today's episode, we're going to explore ways in which creators express and deepen their creativity and how they navigate industry gatekeepers or bypass them completely. Let's start with the story of Terrius Nash and Chris Stewart, a musical duo that dreamed of becoming big-time songwriters and producers someday. Nash, 25, and Stewart, 33 at the time, were just messing around their Atlanta studio on a cloudy day. Nash walked in and heard a magical beat coming from Stewart's DAW, his digital audio workstation. Nash's first words when he heard this groove were, Oh my god, what is that beat? Stewart started laying down a simple four-chord vamp over the drum beat. Nash heard those chords. G-flat, D-flat, A-flat, and B-flat minor. And the first verse of lyrics poured onto the paper in less than 60 seconds. They finished the demo within just a matter of hours, and they had goosebumps the whole time. These two were experienced producers and musicians, but they were by no means in the big leagues quite yet. They knew that this was going to be the song that would catapult them into stardom. They could feel it. Nash, like a lot of great artists, doesn't like to dwell on his creations, and prefers to just move on to the next thing. But before he left the studio that day, he did something he almost never did. He took home a copy of the demo. When Nash got home that night, his wife, Navia, knew something was up. She asked why he had that look on his face. He said, let's go to the movies. And on the way there, he blasted the demo in the car. Immediately, Navia started crying. She knew that her husband hadn't just written a hit, he had written a smash. In the words of Stewart, a hit is a hit, but a smash is a life changer. So with tears in her eyes, Navia asked the only logical question. Who are you going to get to sing this? Nash and Stewart knew that they had to find a star to sing their new gem, but they were still small time and didn't have a lot of leverage, but that didn't matter. First, they sent their song to one of the biggest pop stars of the time, Britney Spears, who Stewart had worked with on a project years before. There was just one problem. Britney was publicly and personally battling demons at the time. Nash and Stewart waited two weeks for a response from Britney's team. Nothing. They had no choice but to move on. Stewart sent the demo to Karen Quack, the A&R person at Island Def Jam Records. Karen knew a smash when she heard one and immediately sent the demo to the chairman of the company, the legendary Antonio L.A. Reed. When Reed first heard the song, he said, quote, I'm a melody guy, and the melody got to me from the very beginning. I expected to be let down when it got to the chorus, but instead it went through the roof. Island Def Jam at the time was in the process of rebranding one of their youngest, most promising artists, a 19-year-old former model that was as jaw-droppingly beautiful as she was musically gifted. L.A. Reid knew that this was the song for her and called up Stewart to give him the good news, but now there was just yet another problem. 
While the demo was flying around Def Jam Records, Stuart and Nash met with an associate of Mary J. Blige. Yes, the Mary J. Blige, queen of R&B, who had sold over 75 million records worldwide. And the two dudes promised her team the song, since her team was interested. But Def Jam didn't give up. Karen, the A&R rep, called Nash and Stewart. Quote, I went stalker on them, Quack says. Two in the morning, four in the morning, I was pleading. It worked. Nash and Stewart agreed and flew to LA to watch the recording session. Def Jam's president, Sean Carter, a.k.a. Hova, a.k.a. Jay-Z, popped in and recorded an opening rap verse to the tune. Hey, why not? When the song was released March 29, 2007, it took the world by storm. Entertainment Weekly gave it the number one spot on the best song of the year list. It hit number three for Rolling Stone and Time Magazine's best songs of the year lists, and it won two MTV Music Awards and two more nominations. And it all started from this beat. It was because of this beat that Jay and Rihanna won a Grammy for Best Rap Collaboration and earned Grammy nominations for Record of the Year and Song of the Year. It was because of this beat that Umbrella sold four and a half million copies. Now, where did Stewart find this beat? Did he tirelessly dig through crates of vinyl and find a magical sample from a James Brown record? No. Did he spend hours programming it into a drum machine? No. Did he hire a session drummer to professionally record it in a studio? Also, no. When Nash walked into their Atlanta studio on that fateful day in January 2007 and said to Stewart, Oh my God, what is that beat? The exact beat used in the single that launched Rihanna into superstardom was a simple garage band loop called Vintage Funk Kit Number 3. That's right, the beat heard by countless millions all over the world. The beat that goes through all of the song Umbrella is just a four-second royalty-free drum loop Stewart found in GarageBand. When Nash first heard that beat coming from Stewart's computer, the very first lyric that came to him instantly was the word Umbrella. He ran into the vocal booth and started singing Umbrella with the iconic Ella, Ella, Echoes, and all. The song unfolded to him in a burst of inspiration just by hearing a garden variety funk beat that came preloaded on every Mac computer sold since 2004. Successful creators, when they're at their best, don't give a damn what others will think about their creation. Nash and Stewart heard a stock drum loop and were deeply moved to create art. We see that the making of Umbrella was a huge win-win. Nash and Stewart took advantage of every tool and connection at their disposal, and they exercised their creativity by letting inspiration guide them throughout the production process. In order to make a smash, they gave their listeners what they wanted. We sat down with Andrew Sparkler, the Senior Vice President of Business Development at Downtown Music, which is a music company that does everything from digital distribution to music publishing and neighboring rights. Andrew offered some important insights about writing for mainstream audiences. And actually, one of our writers, Ryan Tedder, who has written for Beyonce and Adele and has his own successful band, One Republic, he's made this point before. He says it's fundamentally changed how I make music because as everyone's attention spans get shorter, the songs are getting shorter. And it used to be, you know, there'd be verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, verse, you know. And now it's like pre-chorus, chorus, super chorus, chorus two. It's just, you know, how much can you stuff into two minutes and 30 seconds? I mean, you know, Old Country Road was, I mean, I don't think that was the three-minute song. So it's funny how these things are cyclical, right? Because when I was little, I would listen to whatever my dad had on the radio, which was usually a lot of tunes from the 50s and 60s. 
and they were all short. Now it's kind of like, it's coming back to shorter songs. I think there's a natural kind of ebb and flow, but I think this one is being driven by technology in two ways. One, people's attention spans are shorter because everyone is used to watching TV and then in addition to that, having screens in front of them to comment in real time on the TV they're watching, right? So it's harder to hold people's attention spans. This perspective reflects how someone like L.A. Reid wants his smashes to sound. Remember that when Reid was listening to the demo version of Umbrella, he was expecting the chorus to lose energy, but instead he mentioned that the song surprised him and the chorus went through the roof. That speaks to the exact mentality that Andrew mentioned just a moment ago. Chorus, chorus, super chorus. Our favorite artists and songs and tracks have an almost superhuman ability to hold on to our attention, and perhaps as creators and producers, we can learn to do the same with our creations. Have you ever been listening to a song in your car and you're late to wherever you have to go because you just need to see the song through till the end? Andrew mentions that a big part of this is that successful songs hit you with the good stuff. They give you that big dopamine release as soon as possible. He suggests that we also see this pattern in hit TV and movies. If you trace kind of comedies over time, the amount of jokes per minute, it's way up. So if my kids watch The Blues Brothers or Spinal Tap or Holy Grail or these things that I kind of thought were chock full of jokes, they're bored, right? Like I thought there were thousands of jokes in Airplane, but it's actually a much smaller amount compared to now because people's attention spans are kind of, they need more stuffed in in a shorter period of time. And I think you're seeing the same thing in music. So there is a need to hit with the chorus more quickly from the beginning, get in, get out, and the song's done. And I think that's because people have short attention spans. And I think that's because of what's happening and, you know, kind of in a larger sense, as we're being pulled in different places because of technology. As Andrew mentioned, we've gotten to the point that a million social platforms, websites, and services are competing for our attention as consumers and producers. The benefit to us is that we have more tools to make music than at any time in human history. Meet Sherry Hu, a music and tech writer whose work has appeared in Billboard, Forbes, NPR, Pitchfork, Rolling Stone, Breaker, and many other publications. Technology has changed the way that artists find material, and I'm thinking about sampling specifically, and sites like YouTube, much better than allegedly legal services like Spotify, surface up really, really deep cuts of various records from around the world that people are uploading to various degrees of legality. And I know that's how I've been discovering a lot more of my favorite music. I know it's how a lot of DJs, how a lot of producers are finding songs to, to sample in their new records. I remember being 15 years old and buying Dr. Dre's 2001 at a Sam Goody the day it came out. In the CD insert, there's an iconic picture of Dr. Dre and Melman standing in what looks almost like a vinyl warehouse, with shelves and shelves of records, and their albums scattered all over the floor beneath them. And the look on Dre's and Melman's faces are priceless. They look exhausted, like they've been pulling all-nighters making this legendary album, but they also look focused and determined. Their hard work ultimately paid off after 2001 hit nearly 8 million record sales and gained RIAA gold and platinum certs in 11 countries. For decades, crate digging was not just a rite of passage for producers, but it was a crucial way for them to find inspiration and sounds. And although there are still a ton of experienced and up-and-coming producers that partake in this ritual, we now have more ability than ever to do the same thing digitally. 
At one point, Chris Stewart was digging through a garage band before he stumbled upon the iconic vintage funk hit number three, and all of the power to create was put into his hands, not into the hands of the traditional gatekeepers of the record labels. Now we're going to look at how one of the most popular bands of the last 20 years used technology to create a brilliant piece of art while signaling to the entire industry that the power has landed into our hands, into the hands of creators. Christmas Day, December 25th, 2010. Does that date mean anything to you? I think it's one of the most important dates in modern music history, but no one seems to talk about it. That was the day Gorillaz released their fourth album, The Fall. Now before I continue, just know that I'm not what you would call a traditional fan of Gorillaz. Other than Clint Eastwood, I can't name a single one of their songs from memory, but I do respect them as artists and creators, and I know that they have a wildly rabid supportive fan base. And if you're part of that tribe, you probably already know where I'm going with this. For the rest of us, here's what happened. Gorillaz is a groundbreaking, genre-bending supergroup founded by Blur frontman Damon Alburn and visual artist Jamie Hewlett. Unlike your average band, all four members were animated virtual members that lived in their own little cinematic universe. Although Damon is the ringleader, the group has had countless visionary collaborators like Mick Jones, guitarist from The Clash, Tina Weymouth from The Talking Heads, Danger Mouse, Del the Funky Homo Sapien, and many, many more. By 2010, the virtual group had sold over 20 million records worldwide. So on October 3rd, 2010, Gorillaz embarked on their Escape to Plastic Beach tour that started at the Bell Center in Montreal, Canada, snaked its way through 16 major U.S. cities coast to coast, and landed back at the Rogers Arena in Vancouver, B.C. on November 3rd. By the end of that 32-date tour, Gorillaz had done something remarkable. They had recorded an entire studio-quality album while on the road, using Damon Alburn's iPad. I'm going to say that again. A grotesquely successful arena-touring major label-signed band with nearly an infinite recording budget recorded their entire fourth album on a 2010 first-generation iPad. Yes, the very first iPad model ever released with a measly 256 megabytes of RAM. To put that into context, the watch on my wrist has triple that amount of RAM. Just recently, I went back and listened to this album, The Fall, and I was utterly blown away. The album doesn't sound dinky or cheap, it sounds like it was recorded in a typical professional studio. The instrumentation is lush, the soundstage is wide, the bass is deep, and the vocals and guitars are crisp. By plugging instruments into an iPad and recording a brilliant piece of art on the road using handheld technology, Gorillaz had signaled a massive sea change in their industry, and the message to fans and musicians was clear. There are no gatekeepers preventing you from recording your art. Period. For example, 700 hours of work and nearly $550,000. That's how much time and money it took the Beatles to make Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Not just one of the greatest albums in the Beatles' discography, but arguably one of the pinnacles of human art. Sgt. Pepper's ushered in a new way of looking at how music could be made. Previously, a studio was just a place to lay down your art onto tape. But the Beatles and their producer, George Martin, had a new idea. What if, instead of treating the studio as just a place to record, they treated it as an instrument, George Martin said. When I first came into the business, the ideal for any recording engineer in the studio was to make the most lifelike sounds that he could possibly do. To make a photograph that was absolutely accurate. 
Well, the studio changed all that, because of instead of taking a great photograph, you could start painting a picture by overdubbing, by using different kinds of speeds. You are painting with sound. Where our musical forefathers had barriers when it came to recording music, we have only opportunity. Here's Sherry Hu, our resident writer expert in the worlds of tech and music. Anyone around the world can essentially upload their music that they're making for much lower cost than previously on their computer, also through their computer onto dozens if not hundreds of different websites for like little to no cost at all. The economics of making it as an artist in general and how I think about it is that the barrier to entry in terms of the, just like the energy, the time investment, as well as the monetary cost of sharing your music with the world is is really low. It's much, much lower than it used to be. But then as a result, the world is just flooded with so much music. Spotify CEO Daniel Ek was known for saying earlier this year that 40,000 tracks are uploaded to Spotify every single day. That's just Spotify. There are probably even more being uploaded to the likes of Apple Music. Definitely more to SoundCloud, I think. They celebrated their 200 millionth track on their platform. And so it's really interesting to me that these platforms kind of celebrate the volume of music that's on their sites, which is definitely, it's worth celebrating, but it's also become a huge challenge for anyone just trying to just trying to get noticed and trying to build an audience as well. Because as the barrier to entry has gotten lower, the market gets flooded, and so it just becomes 10 times harder to make a full-time living off of music. As consumers of auditory art, we have more choices than ever before, with a record number of music tracks being uploaded to streaming platforms every single day. The question then becomes, how do we get noticed? Meet Andy Weissman, managing partner at Union Square Ventures. The risk is quality increasing because human ingenuity is always the same or increasing. Why would there not be more amounts of greater music, however defined? I think the problem with quality is it's hard to define, but something might be quality to you, something different may be quality to me. I think quantity is actually more interesting because I think there'll be more sounds available to more people. That's really, really interesting. And the accessibility of that, which is why we have genres of music Whole genres that are being invented based on the distribution platform. SoundCloud rap is a genre that exists because of the SoundCloud platform. A whole genre of music. Maybe it's actually the most popular genre in the world or the most popular genre in hip-hop right now that came from a platform. Another thing, K-pop, which is maybe the fastest-growing music genre in the world, exists because YouTube allows those K-pop artists access to the world from the moment they create a song, it used to be very, music used to be much more regional based. Now a song can travel the world in a day. And so you have more people making more music and then the types of music and the accessibility of that music is available to everyone around the world. And it kind of changes everything. Historically, if you wanted to have your music heard by the public, if you wanted to sort of have success as an artist or as a songwriter, there were gatekeepers. And the result of that was it was a pretty fine filter and a very subjective filter, the filter of the music executives or the A&R executives who were listening to the music or hearing the songwriters as to what was pushed through to radio, which was really the main means of how people consume music at the time. And aside from the subjectivity, there was sort of a de facto monopoly on how artists and songwriters were and were not paid. Now we can create, distribute, and market our creations without help from major labels or corporations. And that made me think, when did this tradition of gatekeeping start? 
and who was the first person to really stand in others' way when it came to selling music, and what lessons can we learn from their successes or failures? Let's look at the story of how one brilliant, yet arguably corrupt man in Venice, Italy, single-handedly started a revolution in the world of music. In the process, he concocted one of the earliest scams in music history by positioning himself as the industry's first professional gatekeeper. History has been kind to Ottaviano Petrucci, and after all, why shouldn't it? He was the first person in history to turn music into a portable, consumable, and affordable product. In 1501, Petrucci took Johannes Gutenberg's groundbreaking printing press and figured out how to use it to create sheet music. This started a beautiful chain reaction where secular and sacred music spread across the continent, and composers, artists, and listeners began to study, perform, and enjoy music from faraway lands. This was music that they never would have had access to had it not been for Petrucci. Ottaviano Petrucci's origin story is the stuff of legends. He left his childhood home in the rolling hills of Fossombroni, Italy, and moved to Venice in his mid-twenties. At the time, Venice was one of the most advanced printing centers in all of Europe. It was a commercial powerhouse, almost the Silicon Valley of the Renaissance. The money was there, and so was the opportunity. Petrucci just had to find his way in the door. So in 1498, he concocted a devious plan. What if he could position himself as the only person in the city that was allowed to create and sell sheet music? To us, it would have been like starting a record label. You not only had the power to control and disseminate beloved art, but you gained the support and love of your community for taking such a big risk. But Petrucci realized that becoming a music printer was useless if he had competition. Sheet music production was an extraordinarily expensive endeavor at the time. So he fiendishly decided to petition the Venetian Signoria, the authority of Venice, to give him the exclusive right to print music in the entire city. This was a bold idea because the Signoria at the time placed no restrictions to its citizens when it came to producing and selling music. Petrucci thought he could break through by innovating in the space, and he knew that the two most popular instruments in Venice at the time were the organ and the lute both of which were polyphonic instruments, instruments that play more than one note at a time. Nobody in Venice was creating polyphonic music scores using a printing press, so Petrucci had found his way in. He petitioned the Venetian authority with two ridiculous terms. First, that he should be allowed to be the only person in the entire empire to print polyphonic scores, and that no one else could even import or sell scores. Petrucci then went full art of the deal and proposed an extreme time frame for his protection. He wanted these terms to last for 20 years. This is another bold request because the average privilege, what we today would call a patent, would have only lasted 5 or 10 years. But Petrucci wasn't a moron. He knew that his terms were ridiculous, there was nothing preventing a competitor from making polyphonic music scores, so he had to figure out how to sway the Venetian authority. He used the oldest trick in the book by combining flattery with empathy. Petrucci told the Christian aristocracy that granting him this exclusive publisher privilege would directly benefit the church, because it would make religious chants easier to reproduce. He chose to appeal to the church's moral sense of duty. Nobody in the church seemed to care that Petrucci's request was crazy, because the lethal combination of empathy and flattery won them over. On May 25, 1498, the Doge of Venice granted Ottaviano Petrucci the exclusive privilege to print sheet music in all of Venice for the next 20 years. 
Now came the hard part. Petrucci had to put up or shut up. With every ticking minute, his privilege was nearing extinction, and he had to start producing while the getting was good. He ended up creating musical scores using the triple impression method. He configured the printing press to complete a piece of sheet music using three passes, and the result was remarkable. Petrucci ended up producing some of the most beautiful and intricate sheet music of the entire Renaissance period. His product was a gorgeous treat. Each manuscript was a piece of art that showed you how to perform a piece of art. But it took him a full three years to launch his first product. In 1501, he and his editor, a Dominican friar, combined dozens of secular songs into a book called 100 Songs of Harmonic Music, and it was a milestone. It was the first time anyone had printed polyphonic sheet music using a printing press. It included songs from popular composers of the time, and it was a huge hit. Now, music for the first time was able to be enjoyed by the middle class. By the end of his life, Petrucci produced a massive 61 publications of printed sheet music, of which five have been lost, but his legacy was cemented in history. Petrucci's final publication was dated 1520. In 22 short years, the music industry saw the meteoric rise and the inevitable fall of its very first professional gatekeeper. We've seen gatekeepers rise and fall countless times over the last hundred plus years, and it seems like the major labels are the next ones that have a technological target on their back. Here's Andrew Sparkler again, Senior Vice President of Business Development at Downtown Music. There are certain things that a major record label or an independent label will always have the market advantage on, but I think they're losing ground in that promotional scheme ever more people are visiting Spotify and Apple and Sirius, the managers are just as much as the labels have relationships with them. And I think that's all part of the promotion game. So if the three main pieces of having a record deal historically were distribution, funding to make the record and promotion, you can see how technology has massively disrupted this. And I think There's the long tail, which people talk about a lot with respect to DIY technology. And the long tail kind of means all of the artists and songwriters who make up, think of it as like the 99% who are are out there trying to break. And as the gatekeepers have kind of faded away, and there is now everyone is almost drowning in content, much of that is the long tail. And sure, a lot of it is music by artists that might have a very small amount of streams. But every once in a while, something will bubble up, and it also leads to more niche taste. And so I think there's never been a better time as a music fan. As Andrew mentioned, the best part of the fall of these gatekeepers is that many of the people who would have had systemic barriers in their way can now take their future and their success into their own hands. Here's Steve Martocci, CEO and founder of Splice. You know, we've been on a very awesome kick around promoting women producers in a big way. We have a pack from uh, Wonder Girl that crossed a million downloads, a pack from Nova Wave that DJ Khaled just put up on his Instagram story. And these are great women producers that we're really trying to help shine too. So, you know, that's a cool thing is there's so much to discover. So the mode- you can end up just browsing every week as a 
what's hot, what's new. I just want to stay fresh. You could do some organization or you use it. I just need that flute in the key of B. Well, we got that. So it's kind of with you at all times. Are you finding that your biggest successes, and I'm talking commercial successes, like songs that used Splice to create and write them, the ones that are famous, are you finding that those are often a team of people that make it, or is it a person sitting by themselves in front of their computer? I think that inherently pop hits and top tracks, it's really interesting to watch how these different teams of songwriters who we hear about that like have different you know, they have their young people scouting splice, finding cool stuff, moving the stuff they find up to the next level producer, moving that up to the, and then it goes in front of the, the artist to kind of sing over. There's some incredible, but that's the LA system right now. The LA system is very collaborative. There's a lot of people involved on a lot of tracks. Like Nashville in the old days. Yeah. I think Nashville still got a whole scene going, but then, you know, at the same time you say that, and then you look at someone like Billie Eilish her stuff, they do not use splice. I found that out. But the person who discovered her is a Splice investor, which is pretty awesome. It's obvious to all of us that the tools are here for us to use and to make magic out of them. Here's Andy Weissman again. Right now, I believe that the most popular musical instrument in the world is the computer, the laptop or the phone. And we know the number of people who have laptops or phone are somewhere between three and five billion people. So there are now three or five billion potential artists. And all they need to do is actually use those devices to create music. They can have a subscription to something like Splice and they have for six or nine dollars have access to a million sounds a month. They could create a song, they could upload it to SoundCloud, upload it to Spotify, then that music is accessible all around the world. All that can be done from their bedroom. I think that's maybe the most radical shift if you think about the shift in the form and the formats is that because the access is available to the greatest number of people than we've ever seen before. And that kind of changes everything. We have seen the fall of nearly every musical gatekeeper in the last hundred years. Now we can create, distribute, and market any piece of music we want to. It is then that we realize that the last gatekeeper to fall, the one that is really preventing us from letting our creativity flow, is the gatekeeper in our head. Let Creativity Flow is produced by Osiris Media. It's edited and mastered by Revoice Media, hosted by me, Amar Sastry. Special thanks to Sherry Hu, Andy Weissman, Andrew Sparkler, Steve Martocci, and to the entire team at Splice. We'll be back with episode two of Let Creativity Flow next week. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and visit osirispod.com creativity for a special offer from Splice for listeners of the podcast. Thank you.